Welcome back to the True Geordie podcast. Today's guest was one of the original guests that we had, one of the most special guests, Nick Yaris. Welcome back, bro. Thank you, Brian. It's an honor to be back, man. It's, it's so cool to see you come up to me on the street. You know, I, I saw you last time. We, we were in the studio. Mm. I saw you walking up to me, and I was like, there's my boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah we've kept in touch, and... Um, you know, you are such a special guest. That it, it, very unforgettable. I'm sure that the uh, the original fans would love to see you back here. But obviously, we've got new new people who might not be aware of your story. So, just to give some context of what you are most known for, um, I'll let you say it because no one says it better than you. Thank you. My name is Nick Harris. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. For those of you who don't know my story yet, I was convicted of the and murder of a woman I never met at the age of 20, having received a three-day murder trial. I then spent the next 23 years in solitary confinement, except for a brief lapse when I escaped from death row in 1985, spent 25 days on the FBI's 10 most wanted list until I had the courage to turn myself back in. I was then returned to Pennsylvania, where I was originally sentenced to die. And I became the first man in the United States to seek DNA testing to prove my innocence. It took me 15 years and a letter to the courts asking to die to get that accomplished. In 2004, in January, I was released. In the 19 years that have preceded that, I've gone around the world teaching people about neuroplasticity healing. I had the great honor of being in England at the time when I first met Brian, to show true courage and ability, I came on his first podcast after losing our daughter to SIDS. Brian thought I would be distraught and anyone could appreciate that I would be. But it was so important for this man and I to bring a cogent message to his listeners. And that podcast was huge because there were so many lads that reached out to me and told me how much I meant to them and loved me instantly for pouring my heart out. It was one of the greatest gifts, Brian, because I needed that reinvigoration of love because of what I was going through personally. I mean, you know, because you're a death row prisoner on the internet, there's always going to be the sinister aspect. And of course, I was inundated with the attacks that I might have killed the child and all those things. So imagine that I've not only endured the sufferings of having been falsely accused of killing a woman and raping her and being put on death row, but I would also be accused later in freedom of killing a child. And you can imagine how psychologically that could affect you but I was given the grace of having been falsely accused of something previously. And it, it gave me a shield. Because you know if someone says something dirty about you and you know it's not true, instantly you're strong. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, 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 that ain't me. And from that becomes a determination of who you are. Now, I left England in 2013 to develop a major motion picture about my life. I came back in 2016. Was that, was that the Fear of 13 documentary or was that something else? Oh, uh, no. The Fear of, docu- uh, Fear of 13 came out in 2015. Okay. I was with this girl, Jessie, and she left. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. So right before the film came out, too. So 
I was um, getting all these amazing messages. Random House Publishers wanted to republish my book, Seven Days to Live, mm -hmm. under the title, Fear of 13, Countdown to Execution. I wrote a stage play based on the two black gentlemen from the movie Fear of 13, Wesley and Butch, mm -hmm. a beautiful musical mm -hmm. called Big House Voices, and I was having that developed. And I met an English woman named Laura, and I fell in love, and I was living in the West Country. So everything was back to good. You know what I mean? Look, and that's who you're with when I met you. Is that correct? Yeah, Laura. Yeah. So look at is the. Is she who you've got all the children with? No. So, so um, my only daughter is with another woman that I married in 2005 when I first moved here. Mm -hmm. I came here to speak before Parliament, ironically, about mental health issues in the prisons and wrongful convictions and also an embargo against Pennsylvania for having the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So that's when I first moved here. I had a child from that first relationship. And then when I met Laura, I was in Basingstoke and I met this girl who just blew me away. Do you know what I mean? I remember the zenith of my happiness at that time was having the honor and distinction of going to Geneva at the request of the president of the EU to address the United Nations Human Rights Council mm -hmm. and to have me and Laura in such a beautiful atmosphere like that, walking around Lake Geneva. It was one of the best nights of my life, right? Mm -hmm. I go then to, uh, I met people from the Muhammad Ali Foundation. And one of my best friends, Anthony Sanmandani, is an Iranian-born American who is next level. So he and a director named Alejandro Monteverdi and some very big celebrities I just told you about mm -hmm. are launching a brand new major motion picture about my life. Mm. And I have the honor and distinction today to be launching OurHealing.org, a universal UN-sponsored platform I'm going to be the spokesman of to help people not commit suicide to deal with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And since March is Mental Health Awareness, it's a great month to launch this global program to get people not to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I did your podcast in 2016, remember? Yeah. And then you messaged Joe Rogan on his birthday, mm -hmm. which is Jamie Lee's birthday, the little baby that died in our home. And then... I commented on that. And, and this is how I ended up on the Joe Rogan podcast because of you. <laughs> That's so funny. And the crazy thing is, when I went to do his podcast, you know how my life is this last week? It was just like that, Brian. I got suckered by a guy who was trying to get an education program launched from New Zealand to go meet Stedman Graham the night before I went to Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm -hmm. Stedman Graham is Oprah Winfrey's husband. So I go in this big event after being told Stedman told his personal assistant all these gracious things about me. So I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. the biggest boy in social platform. I mean, this guy builds everything, right? I go to the event and I introduce myself. He has no clue who I am. Brian, they have this big introduction where everybody gets three minutes to tell the room who they are. You know they stopped when I spoke. <laughs> I shut it all down, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I walked out. I told him this. I said, look, I'm very sorry. I'm not anyone of a business acumen. 
I don't understand how to build these platforms. I was brought here under the circumstances that you, sir, knew who I was. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm aware that I was duplicitously brought here, I have to go. And I walked out, man. And then I got back in the car with this dude, didn't say a word to him, 80 miles an hour, back to Burbank to go stay in the hotel. And then the next morning, I had like four meetings, and then I went on Rogan. Okay, let me, let me interject here, because I understand that you have CTE from brain trauma. From, for, for one thing that you didn't mention was that you were when you were a child, you suffered a lot of abuse. And then in prison, you suffered abuse. And we're also talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. So right. as you've admitted to me, you know, emotionally, sometimes, uh, you know, that takes over. And, it does. And, and so for you to have felt so let down that night by that person who led you on, it explains a little bit because when you went on Joe Rogan... I was a mess. Yeah. I was texting Laura. That we, she was up in Oregon. We're doing the, the daggers by text. By daggers, you mean arguing? Yeah. Yeah. Because she was up there opening up a shop with her friend. She didn't like the fact that I was on the road without her. Like, the, all the normal things a couple can go through. Okay. So, me and her in Discord, I just got played for a nut by a dude that was just so desperate to get money for his program. He lied to me to bring me to meet Stedman Graham. Mm. And I had to be honest with Stedman and walk out because it's not fair to me to sit there and be used all night yeah. and then have this guy shine off of my being used. So then you go on Rogan, and, and I remember watching Rogan thinking, this is going to be... Perfect. Yeah, because uh, you've got no. a great speaker, you've got Joe Rogan there, but you, um, you basically went to bits. and, and I got you attacked. Could, you could say Joe Rogan couldn't... Joe... Joe um, his speciality isn't like necessarily the most emotional podcasts. It's more of the informative podcast. That's kind of what I would say he does. And he didn't really, I think, understand the full picture of what you'd been through in your life. Um, and, the, and the comments were really bad. People were calling you a liar. People were saying a lot of this. And I felt so bad for you because I was like, people don't understand. Like they're judging you through the eye of who they are in their lives. A lot of they time, don't yes. understand that like you're a, you're a kid who's been through so much and it, it, clearly you weren't in a good way. So do you want to explain a little bit about what it was like to go through that as well? Yeah, so... Honestly, the very first message I got after doing Rogan was from the following. Hello, Mr. Yaris. I am a disabled Native American combat vet who lost both legs in war. Thank you for going on Joe Rogan today. I think I can make it. Dear Mr. Yaris, I'm a 27-year-old man who had open-heart surgery at the age of 17. I got addicted to drugs because of pain medications were withdrawn. I've now been on the street for 10 years and my parents don't speak to me, but I just got off the phone to my mom. Mm -hmm. So, Brian, I know that there was a lot of attacks, like you said, because people couldn't grasp what I was going through, but I still got through to people. Mm -hmm. So I have to always understand a lot of people aren't going to like me. A lot of people won't accept me. And I have to continue on doing things despite that. Recently, I just went through a lot more trauma, but, and you know this, mm -hmm. look, it's crazy. I'm walking around in England right now with no identification because my passport was maliciously reported as stolen. So 
I got to get a new passport. Mm-hmm. But nothing will stop me. Like, I keep going through all these things where... It does feel like the issues that you have post-leaving death row have followed you. It's not like you've just slipped right back into society. And, and people expect that of you. But that's a, how could you? I know. So I want to clear up one thing I've been attacked for so much. Everyone keeps saying I got $4 million. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, my, Are you talking about the compensation that people he, think you got from being right, so, unjustly incarcerated? I had to go out and hire a lawyer. The lawyer took $1.3 million off the top. I was living in England when I got the settlement at 1.9 to the exchange. I got 1.3 million pounds and I had to give my wife half of it because I was separating and leaving her and she said that the UK courts were going to give it to her in divorce anyway. So I, I ended up with 600,000 pounds. I, built, I bought a house in St. Leonard's and I started over. Is that the countryside house that I've seen you in, in America? Or is that a different... No, I was down in St. Leonard's on Sea and I had a house down there. Oh, sorry. And I, was, and I, had, I did it for a reason. I knew that there was going to be the last summer I would have custody or control of being in my daughter Laura's life. So I... Why did you know that? Because my ex-wife had uh, gotten a new partner. And after she had gotten a new partner... I knew her machinations would be move Nick out of the way so her and her new Nick could have a life together with my daughter. And she did exactly that. She used the machinations of the court system by getting me to send her a stupid email by provoking me to get a restraining order two consecutive years in a row. And then I didn't see Laura because the court awarded full custody to my ex. And then... In the end, I was allowed to see her for like 15 minutes in a McDonald's if I bought presents for her. So I went through that thing where I lost a child and I was living in St. Leonard's and my brother Mike was doing poorly. So I flew to Las Vegas with him and I had an amazing time with my big brother. We rented a car. I got him a hooker, got him all clean. Oh, yeah. You know, come on, man. I, I won $10,000 at Blackjack. He had this dream of going to Mick Jagger's house. My brother fell off of a roof at the age of 17, had open cranial surgery, and lost his personality. He became an alcoholic. This is my father's been through hell. My little brother died in the basement while I was on death row. Okay, whoa. So, yeah. Okay, we're going to have to backtrack, yeah, because I can only imagine how the audience is listening. So, but I just wanted to finish that. Mm. Okay, 2010, I took my brother to Bakersfield, California to buy a property called Saddle Mountain, and we were going to raise horses together because I could get him off the street because he was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I met a girl. And my father said, Nikki, I want you to stay in England for Laura. I got Mikey, and then less than a year later, he died in his sleep from a seizure or heart attack. Right, okay. And when you say that you had a younger brother, you had a brother die as well when you were young? In 2002, my little brother Marty died of an Oxycontin alcohol combination overdose in my parents' basement. My father walked downstairs and he was dead. Everything that's been done to me has given me a chance to get through to people in a way that I could have never had a gift. Literally, since Joe Rogan, I've saved 7,000 people from killing themselves. How did you come up with that number? 
because I have it recorded with other people. I'm working with others. This is great. I always keep those messages. There, I'll show you. Do you I'm mean gonna, like the DMs and stuff in your, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to start sending you messages from your audience where some dude's going to tell me to tell you <laughs> today we saved him from killing himself or killing someone else or getting smashed on drugs. Well, I've definitely had my ups and downs in life with the, the suicidal thoughts. I've been on antidepressants. I'm currently on antidepressants. And... Uh, you know, thank God that they have medication and help out there and, and people like yourself who are speaking the way you are. Well, see, this is why I think that you're the perfect example of understanding and using my techniques. Mm. Brian, the way to heal yourself is to rewrite your brain like you did with your body in a gym. Mm -hmm. Okay. Neuroplasticity is a concentrated effort to detoxify the PTSD from your brain mm. and how you do it is utter politeness listening to music and prayer interacting in nature or with children these things are real I go out of my door every day trying to be exceedingly polite because Robin Sharma the foremost authority on neuroplasticity taught me that what I'm doing is I'm creating a reward system for my brain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter about the response of the person that I'm being polite to. My brain is seeking this inner action that gives me a reward system. Now, this is the development of charm and charisma. I can walk into a room and I can blow people away because over the last 19 years, I've been practicing kindness as a strength enabling eraser of all of my PTSD. As I sit here before you, I've never had one psychiatric counseling session. I've never had to take medications to give me my balance back. Mm -hmm. I've learned a tool that works. You're, you, you have had issues where you, like you explain, you're, you're having difficulty with a relationship or you're having difficulty with that. How do you cope in those moments where you, let's, let's take, for example, you've been removed from your daughter's life. Yeah. Is that still the case? Yes. Okay. How do you cope with that? All right. I've learned to be kind to myself. It's the hardest thing for most men. We're quick to say we're a piece of shit. We hate ourselves. Those fucking words have power, man. Mm. All right. So if those words have power, Nick, you can do this. Go out and try to be a loving father to whoever will allow that to replace what's been taken. Mm -hmm. Brian, it's all why you, you kind of adopted your partner's children. Yeah. Laura's. Yeah. That's why I went. I was so eager to be a dad again because it's my dream. In the film, the, the documentary, The Fear of 13, my last quotes were, I was going to find a girl, I was going to fall in love, and best of all, I was going to be a great dad. I wanted to have that feeling, and Bethany and Zara are two brilliant girls, and I had the distinction and honor of being in their lives from the ages of two and four, where I basically lost Laura. Mm -hmm. So God gave me two for one he took. Mm -hmm. I really believe so much in my spirituality. I look at it this way. Who am I to question God and cry? 
one of the hardest things that you went through was obviously losing your baby. Um, And that happened right where we'd met. And I didn't want to pry. I didn't want to push because it was very raw, very fresh. And I wanted to concentrate on the bulk of the story before that. Um, and I, to be honest, I was scared to push the wrong button because I thought I can't imagine anything worse than what you were going through. Now you're looking back at that with the, the current state of mind that you're in. How do you how do you feel about going through something so difficult? I, first and foremost, you have to think of others in times of terror. If you don't, you're going to just implode. Mm-hmm. I have a built-in factor of being a true empath. I have empathy for others that allows me to step back. For those of never, anyone who's never heard this story, my wife and I uh, were living out in Ilchester area and Laura, my partner, had uh, a flu cold, you know, it was going around the house and She's a busybody. She has to have a neat house. You know the girl. You know what I mean? So I was like, Laura, come on. I want you to just go ahead and have a a lay down with us. I put the baby in the crib upstairs in the bedroom. I came back downstairs. I grabbed Laura by the waist, threw her on the sofa, and we're having a nap. 20 minutes later, I go upstairs to check on the baby. She's dead. And this is the, the worst moment of my life. I pick the baby up. I'm screaming. I'm in terror. I go down the stairs. Laura just loses it. Our lovely neighbor runs in and starts this piece CPR as I'm on the phone trying to get the services to help. In the aftermath of something this fucking big, you don't do that thing where it's you. I had to think of the mother I watched go through a cesarean and nearly die. The reason Laura survived surgery is we kissed. You know, before she went into operating theater, we kissed for a solid 10 minutes and I lowered her blood rate. The doctors in the OR said that I was the best thing possible because all the while I had her connected to me mentally so that when her blood rate dropped down so low she passed out, when she came back in, she saw me. You don't make this about you in that moment Brian I had to man up for these children and for this woman and she just reminded me of this when I was struggling just a couple nights ago with these PTSD dreams I don't have it in my day she said you told me to eat you told me to care for myself and you made me listen to you now I'm telling you this isn't going to be real when you wake up I'll be here for you I love you, but listen to me. Eat, sleep, rest, breathe. You see? So anybody who's gone through the loss of a family member and a tragedy, try and think about all of the other people around you and how your strength can save them from additional suffering. Be that brilliant English, Irish, Wales lad and take that next level of pain and suffering and spare mum, dad and everyone else from seeing you capitulate to your anger and that will make their suffering better. 
I think that's a great thing to say, mate, because I know, uh, I think we're heading in as a generation now, the people who I know and have been around in the last few years, a lot of people just focus on themselves. They're not trying to help the next guy or the other family members. Um, and one thing that you touched on there, which I find interesting, I have PTSD dreams, night terrors, some people call them things of that yeah. nature. And it's really been a problem in my life where I've struggled to sleep. Uh, and that's when you turn to other things to help yeah. you sleep. And before you know it, you know, things are difficult in your life. Um, so, yeah, what are those like for you? I can't pick the baby up. Oh, My arms won't work. Right. And I, I go, after this last incident last month with another death in my life that you know about that I don't want to repeat because the children don't know this. Mm -hmm. And Laura's asked me to protect them. Mm -hmm. It's this it's such a near exact thing where I'm end up screaming right and I was helpless to change the situation mm -hmm. that my dreams got really wicked lately um two nights ago I literally got up it in the middle of the night ready to fight it's the fear flight thing in your brain yeah. right so I'm gonna have to start teaching you a very brilliant breathing exercise that will put you down better than dopamine. All right, so you do know that your sleep is regulated from your stomach. No, I didn't know that. Your, your stomach has to release dopamine for you to pass out. Mm -hmm. If you have an upset stomach or you're going through internalizations, the stomach acid rises so much it won't let the dopamine come out. Ah, so when we're stressed out, that's why we struggle to sleep. So I, after this program, I'm going to teach you mm -hmm. how to fix that while lying on your back so you actually get high and pass out. Well, you know this dream specifically, you said the helplessness and the fight or flight. Those are two things that are consistent in my dreams. And I think that's because of my PTSD. Um, I, I'm in situations where I'm trying to save people. Yeah. And I can't move or, or stuff like that. You right. Know? And this is exactly what mine is. Yeah. I can't pick the baby up. Yeah. I've run into the room. I'm screaming <laughs> in horror and I can't do anything. My arms won't work. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. How did you and Laura like cope? Because I know you, Laura, have have had time apart since that point. Was was that one of the reasons? No. So COVID wiped us out. You know, I'm, I was on my way to the Royal Copenhagen Theater, the a ballet theater, in 2020, and I was on my way to the London School of Film where the movie Fear of Thirteen was made mm. to speak. Gone everything, and then. Uh, we had an 81-year-old alcoholic landlord who used to come to the house with a pistol demanding money. And I'm like, I got to kill this old dude or he's going to kill me in front. The bad thing, Brian, is the children's window would be right there. And one day he came up there all drunk. So you guys are struggling to make ends meet. And he's... COVID, yeah. yeah. And he came up to the house. Nah, I want to see you. Where's my money? I said, look, you need to stop coming to my house like it's something you can do as a landlord and don't come here with a pistol on your hip like you're trying to intimidate me and I look and there's Zara right at the window man I'm thinking if this dude kicks off I gotta break his jaw and take the gun off more he's going he's going to cap me you know what I mean so me and Laura said no we're not doing this to the children and we moved into a tent 
on the Chetco Bar River, right above Brookings, Oregon, and we lived in the woods Bro, for the next two years. I remember seeing you do this, and from afar, I was really worried about you. Yeah, because there was gun. They, uh, me and the kids were in the car. People shot at the car. We had a bear attack at the camp. Uh, the dude Sam that we were living with fired a forty-five pistol at a at a cougar that was jumping out of the woods. So it's real. I felt really bad for you and, and the family. Like, you know, how does it, as men, we want to provide. We want right. to take care of our people. And you're now in the woods and like living off the land pretty much. Like, how, how did that feel? Humiliating. I lost everything. I couldn't take care of these kids. And my wife, she had to go work in town cleaning houses while I put the kids online and did their schooling. We used to have to climb up on a second ridge and we called it Habib's Internet Cafe so that we had a place up there on a big rock that would get signal for the children to go online and then I would walk back down with the dogs protecting us. I've been through every extreme in America and it's crazy. Like, um, it's wild, wild west, boy. It really is, man. And Am I right in thinking... So she went back to England. Yeah. So did you separate or? Were you yeah. So I had to. I got a bullshit conviction in in, in America, and it kept me back there. So yeah. What was that? Uh, I got befriended by a wealthy patron who wanted to buy books for the Doctor Phil show when I got my friend off a of death row and tried to give me access and and tried to splash the cast on us in the hopes of luring me away from Laura, and then didn't get her way. And spitefulness ensued. Oh, a woman. So I got convicted of theft. And I just finished two years probation. This is all true. I don't, I don't mind. I didn't do it. You know what I mean? So in the end, yes. Was I, there a conviction there then, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. I couldn't come back to the United Kingdom and be with my wife for two years. I had to wait all this out in the woods with nothing for the last. What did they say you stole? Credit card money for using to purchase my books. Right. For the Dr. Phil show that I never appeared on because COVID canceled it. Me and a guy named Jason Flom went to Los Angeles because I did the extraordinary thing of keeping my word to a guy named Walter Ogod, and I got him off a of death row after 20 years of trying for him. I've seen that. Yep. Yeah. You, I think That's you some like, badass. You got like five people off of death row, right? Four off, four off of death row, and I got two guys' life sentences, so six together I saved can we go back to this this charge that you got? Because I'm I'm so confused. You, All right, it's it's a mentally ill person who is still at this point trying to hurt me. Is that why you said you had a restraining order put on someone? No, that's that's here in England. So <laughs> I know I was on the phone all Dude. night. To, I know I was on the phone all night swearing out a statement <clears throat> be, okay, because so of the current stalking situation in my life. That's gone on for 12 years. All right. A lot of the attacks on the Internet were orchestrated by my ex-partner who has gone out and solicited mentally ill people and energized them with lies about me so that she can get them to attack me. That's why I have so much besmirchment on my character. Okay. So this was a partner who you were once with. And you're saying that she's telling people stuff about you to get them to attack you. Right. Like she goes, um, recently, she got a hold of people from my GoFundMe. Anybody that donated gets a message from her. 
she's seriously stalking me. She got one woman in England here who I was speaking to that on the day that I just told you about experience another death, I told her about that incident, but wasn't telling Laura or anybody else because I didn't want the children or Laura to be hurt by that information. My ex-partner got that voicemail message and sent it to Laura to just crush her. You see what I mean? Okay, so where does this stem from? Where, where is the original patho- pathologically distorted need for vengeance? Because vengeance w- from what? For leaving her. Right. Okay. This is the mother of my first child. Right. Okay. All right. And what is she accusing you of to these people who are donating? Anything she can. So basically, she has an intention of making me look as dirty and as salacious as she can in vengeance to destroy me. For This is going on. I had to quit Twitter, 15,000 followers. I had to give up Facebook, 25,000 followers, because I was being inundated by people that she went out and recruited. It got so bad... Laura would go through so much trauma. Karen constantly would message Laura. Like, I haven't been with this woman in almost 17 years. And she, every partner since then, she's been involved with. Right. So imagine no matter what trauma I'm going through in life that we talked about, I got a stalker for the last 12 years who has a partner that's so gross. He was on Facebook saying how he was going to have a daddy-daughter day with my child, Laura Rebecca Yaris, taunting me, man, Mm -hmm. alongside my ex. And and what was the recent issue? Because you messaged me something about... uh... Yeah, they canceled my passport. They uh, Karen got in touch with this woman here that got the message about the death and sent it to Laura and also had an image of my passport because this woman had tricked me into saying she was going to get me a flight here and I would pay her back. And they canceled my passport. So they did everything possible to sabotage me from being here today with you. I got aphasia from having my head bashed in and being raped as a seven-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. So I had aphasia all my life. And then last year... I flipped my car over and both dogs shot out of the window, the front window, and I survived, but I took a concussion because I kept telling my boy, I have a friend named Jason Daly, and I was telling him, I don't remember hanging upside down. So one of the things that I find with you when you talk is we're all over the place. I'm going to try and keep this in in a a line for people to understand. Yeah, yeah. So I remember this happening, this car accident, and I remember your car being... You sent a picture, or you put a post, a picture on Instagram of your car, and it it was bashed up. It was bad, and I think the comment was something along the lines of "We've lost everything now." Yeah. So you were really low, and how how did you flip the car? What happened there? So I was working on an equestrian property that had handicapped children on it, and my job was to take care of the horses so that these kids that would otherwise thrash and have all these problems could sit calmly with the horse. So it was brilliant. I did all this concrete work. I laid over 3,000 pounds of concrete by myself. Building, you see them pictures. I was ripped, right? Because mm-hmm. I was doing concrete work all that day. And it was so cold that it never got below uh, freezing. And it was sunny. But I went down a mountain road. 
to go into town to get dog food and food for myself, there was a patch of black ice. I was only going 35 miles an hour when I hit a corner. I spun around twice. I hit the berm. And then I flipped. I saw the dogs go out the window. I flipped again. And then I don't remember. All I remember was standing there going, come here, Mango. Come here, baby. She was on the road right by me, whimpering. And Blue ran off for the next two hours. The crazy thing is, uh, my phone was trapped under the car. I heard whimper and I tried to pick the car up. And then I found my phone under the car in the ice and it was stuck to Instagram. That's how it ended up with a live post. I couldn't get nothing. And I was like, William, my friend in Cave Junks, I'm like, William, you got to come help me, please. And this dude comes out of nowhere and his, his is, is the lights on the road that lit up that car. Mm. And he couldn't believe I lived. Everybody else was like, how did you survive? My boy Jason that night, he was talking to me in the RV and he said, Nick, why ain't you freaking out, man? I said, honestly, Jason, the first time I almost got killed, I freaked out. Probably the third time I almost got killed. But this is like number 11, man, and it don't freak you out no more. And if it wasn't for the fact that you've been messaging me every single time that these things happen, I'd be sitting here right now. And it does feel like a hell of a lot of things and a hell of a lot of different. But you know them all. But you've been telling me as these things have been I told you all along. Yeah. And what is your current status in your brain health? So I developed um, aphasia from blunt force trauma at the age of seven. Aphasia can be recognized as simply as someone stuttering. Their brain is not able to slow down to let their vernacular take over and speak. In times of stress, I become monocyted and I have to shut down. My brain won't let me see out of the left eye. Um, CTE is a brain um, diagnosis for NFL football players. This is why a lot of them kill themselves. Or kill other people as well. Yeah, I know. yeah, yeah. And they they struggle to regulate their emotions. No, it, no, it's ang. It, all right, so if you think about it, there's a poisonous side that tells me I have to end this. Mm-hmm. This is crazy, Brian. Like, I can't keep suffering like this. You have to. Instead of a normal person saying, "Nate, I need a break from this. I need to back away," I'm diving in because the CTE is driving me. It's hard though, isn't it? Because I know a lot of people who aren't nice to themselves, who don't. They don't get it. They, well, it, it's very difficult, isn't it? It's a lot easier to criticize yourself and tell yourself why well, you're not the best version of yourself and how you could always be better. It's all oh, what happened to me where that was some wrong shit and I'm going to try and work through it or I'm better than that. You see what I mean? It's very hard to take the high road all the time, but I do try. All right, so... Even if you don't take the high road and you fall prey, what do you do, Brian? You come back to yourself because you have to live with yourself. And at some point, you're going to have to forgive yourself. And that's what's killing you. Well, you know what? That's why I try and always give myself the least amount of regrets possible. So Mm -hmm. even when people treat me like shit, I always try and say, "I'm, I'm going to give the best I can give. And then at the cutoff point, where, I, as you once said to me, I dismiss them yeah, from man. my life. But up until that point, you, 
you give an olive branch, you give an olive branch until they keep breaking off every single olive branch that you have left. Right. And then you can walk away from a situation feeling, I did everything I could. And then you're not going to be as critical of yourself. All right. Even if you don't get that chance mm. and you blow it, what happens when you fuck up, Brian? No, like that's the good part. Mm. But in your, your personal life, you've blown it and you know it. Mm. And then what do you do? You started the cycle. You internalized, you beat yourself down, probably got high over it. And then, no, seriously, Dick, this is the usual thing. I've watched this. Oh, yeah. And then we come back and we set ourselves up to do it again. I personally have these two sides to me where I'm the most critical of myself of anyone. Like, I got, you know, we all get things on the internet said about us. No one's more critical of me than me. Like, I beat myself up a lot. But then also, I have this, like, but enough's enough, and now I'm going to be show them who I really am. Maybe how you, do you? Maybe you, do you need you to hear between this. those two, or no? No, I, so it's weird. I have the blessing of having been called a, a sick psychological rapist, stalking murderer. Nothing can hurt. So me. once every yeah, once you've had the worst done to you, you're you're bulletproof. Right, so I'm bulletproof because of that. And the night that I sat down and asked to dismiss my appeals, nothing can bother me. I I always go back to the worst night and say this ain't it. I've had the worst night of my night. This ain't it. I can come back. Okay. The other point that I wanted to make to you, Brian, and I think maybe you need to hear this. I couldn't have made this without you. And I can't let you do that to yourself. You you taught me at a time of tyranny and loss that I needed to be strong, right? And then secretly, nobody noticed, you were the only person I ever did any of these kind of things with that stayed my friend. Mm. You need to go and put perspective on who you are today from where you were. Mm. That's a hard thing to do, right? No, it's easy because you know now you're a lot stronger because you were there. I, I do feel the way you're speaking, but I, I, but it's those moments, though. It's not. It, it's, it's. I go through them too, Brian. Yeah, I get I'm knocked down, yeah. so you're gonna get knocked the fuck down. So what? How many times you been popped in the head? No, it's it's not the it's not the knockdowns of life. It's it's what I say to myself in those in those dark moments that that is the challenge here. Okay, you know? and that when you know when you're like. But then you need it's to, like 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night and it's dark out and you're you're sort of mulling things over and you're critiquing how your life has turned out and you know and you're looking at what you've put into life and you're looking at what life is and you're asking yourself the question of how the fuck is it here how the fuck is this you know and don't get me wrong i'm, I'm grateful for what i do have but when i, I look at what i've what i've been through um you know, you mentioned karma. I've, I've, I find it hard to believe in karma when I know how good I've been to people, how good I, how nice I am inside, and the way I've been treated. It's difficult to 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 make peace with that. You know. Okay, but maybe the last person that had your en- your energy fucked a lot of shit up, and you're paying for that. One hundred percent. So if you're paying for it, why are you questioning God's toll gate? I don't know if I'm, uh, yeah, I hear, yeah. What, I hear what you're saying. This is, all right, so this is the point. Mm. We pick out a point where our ego makes us then decide. And that's where you're going with this. You're, look what you're, you're actually torment yourself over, your own kindness. That's not fair, Brian. 
Look, in, in the scope of it, yeah. you're internalizing about relationship difficulties, situational difficulty, where you were trying to be good. good. Mm. That's not fair. Mm-hmm. That's like me criticizing you for trying to be fucking nice. That's not fair on you. You're not able to love yourself enough yet to be kind to yourself. Yeah, I think that's definitely And this is the point that will change everything about why you're going through the PTSD. Overriding it with neuroplasticity healing will change everything about your life because every time you go out on that street, you got a chance to heal your brain. I saw this really remarkable thing once that proved my point. I, as a 21-year-old man, was being sentenced to death when the courthouse got struck by a bolt of lightning, man. Fucking hell. Knocked the power out of the building. They took me upstairs and they put me in this room and I'm watching over a courtyard. And there, I'm watching humanity before me. Some people looked up at me and jeered and gave me the dirty looks. But I heard this voice. He said, look him in the eye. I was like, I didn't see nobody. When I went down and I, I was pronounced to be put to death, I asked his honor why he couldn't look me in the eye while he was sentencing me to death as if he was ashamed. He lifted his head and said, do you have anything else to say? I said, yeah, you can go to hell. That's all they put in the newspapers, baby. You get it? Oh, right. Yeah, they left. But I did what God told me. No one could look me in the eye while they were sentencing me to death. Mm. I was so insulted that no one could look me in the eye while they were taking my life. I demanded that. It's it's hard when a group of people are saying that you're something that you're not. Mm. And I don't know how on earth you managed to be okay with life after that because i had a harder journey where when i got thrown in prison they beat me and i wasn't allowed to speak for my first two years in that cell man Mm. i got my ass whooped on my 22nd birthday for singing happy birthday man Mm. so they rush in with the shields on and the big uh gear and then they got a nurse She's got a riot, she got a, a a stab vest on and a riot helmet on, and she's got a, a needle full of Thorazine in her arm. As soon as they get you on the ground, she runs in the middle and jabs you in the ass with it and plunges it, and then you're gone for a week, man. So that was Huntington State Prison, the only prison in America ever condemned for its active practices of torture. Yeah, I remember you mentioning something about how these uh, prison guards would make you guys fight each other. Yeah, man. So, all right, imagine that you have one million prisoners become two million prisoners overnight, and you have large numbers of black prisoners getting their ass whooped in the middle of the mountains by white guards, but now black officers were brought up from the city, and they're witnessing it. Oh, oh no. It wasn't open season anymore, right? So in this weird way, on the back of death uh, row in B-Block, the guards came up with this cockamamie scheme to have gladiator day, man. So as soon as the lieutenant wasn't working on a Sunday, it's open season. So my first encounter was a dude bigger than you, man. And I had to dislocate his, his ankle and smash his face in my elbow because I promised my mom I'm going home. So no matter how many cage fights I had and no one connected a bounty on me, did it? I got some crazy thing where I just... 
I had this super fierce ability to defend myself. Mm. You know what I mean? You're strong as well. I can see that. So, dude, yeah, not only that, I learned all the defense manuals. One of the first Gracies ever incarcerated was on my block. He taught me MMA. So, yeah, like it's crazy how many different techniques and styles. I can make a, a weapon out of a pair of underwear and a magazine and kill you and never leave my cell, man. That's the level of prison I was on, you know. Mm. The worst of the worst. Yeah, so I've been garroted, stabbed. I've been shivved, shanked. I know the difference between both. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of things done to me. And the guards, um, in the aftermath of the riot, I got spared the first day. But about a, mo about a month after the 1989 riot, I was knocked unconscious. And I lost a few days of my life from having a serious beating. And then a year after I returned to prison from turning myself in, from escaping from death row, they beat me for four minutes and paraded me around on a riot stick. Dude, I watched a, a, a CCTV clip the other day of a prison in America. Yeah, they killed that boy. Yeah, you see that one where there's like yeah. five of them and they just... That's what they did to me. Bro. Dude, I told you they that's... They made sure this boy was dead. This, it, was, it was horrendous to oh, watch. During the riot, Brian, do you know what happens? After a riot in America, they bring the National Guard in. These ain't guards. Mm. So by they set the buildings on fire. I was in an old prison that was built in the 1800s for mentally ill men. Like there was writing on my floor from 1904, you know. So the National Guard came in and took control of the prison and they drug everybody past my cell because I was on the bottom tier by the exercises cages that they stacked the bodies up like cords of wood, man. They beat prisoners to death and everything. Yeah, it, what, what shocked me when I was watching this kind of footage, and uh, you know, I've seen some uh, documentaries about this stuff, is how quickly these people get killed by these other prisoners. I mean, it is. I didn't ever have a chance to square up in the Queensbury's rule. <laughs> It's not like that, no. No. These guys so, have got weapons. Yeah, know. so I, I had I also had a bounty on me early on. So anybody that killed me got ten grand. So a lot of dudes try to collect. You mean a bounty on you from from how? From who? From people wanting to see the rapist murder of Mrs. Craig die. Mm. So in in America you could reach out, man. If you got a little bit of coin, if dudes in the county jail know that they're gonna get money in their account for taking you out. That's why a lot of those attacks happen. And they've got nothing to lose, right? No, the first dude that attacked me had 36 years in, and he stabbed me in the chest in Holmesburg Prison. And if it wasn't for a dude named Michael Wolf hitting him with a bench, I'd be dead. Mm. So that's where they made um, law-abiding citizen. I've been, oh. I just went back there and made that new documentary, and I'm in that prison where I got stabbed. What was it like being back there? I had to touch the walls, make sure it was real. Really? Yeah, man. It must have felt weird to be able to walk out of there and no. be a free man after putting yourself back in there. What's weird is I was I was back in a prison, especially one where I was almost murdered, and it was cool that I wasn't there. That that kid that or whatever he was there, but I'd never been there as this. You know what I mean? This man, you know, this grown person. You felt like a different person. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Isn't it weird how we differentiate eras of our lives like different people? Yep. 
you've just came back to England. I'm so in love with England because imagine you get off a death row and you can go somewhere, speak your own language, and the people aren't the ones that hurt you. The, the, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, and everything was brand new for me. I was so childlike. I still remember the first time I saw the moon. I was so excited to see my first full moon. I grabbed a big bowl of ice cream and a blanket, and I threw open the windows in this bedroom, and I sat there in amazement that I could finally see the moon after so many years in solitary confinement. Uh It was that kind of glee and joy I knew I would lose over years, but I was desperately clinging on to it at first. Of all, I mean, I interviewed a lot of people over this last seven years or whatever since I last seen you. But of all the people, you definitely are up there with how much you consider everything in life. Let me put you in your bathroom for 23 years and see what you do about consideration. That's what it was like, Brian. Yeah. 8,057 days, 23 hours a day or more. And what do you think the closest you came to harming yourself was do you have a memory that's yeah my first birthday as a free person really my family didn't want to celebrate my birthday because my father's favorite niece is born a day before me and she was turning 21 that year she's the little girl i kissed when i escaped from death row man Mm. that's crazy so um they decided to have this big blowout 21st birthday for my niece but they didn't want to combine my birthday with it. It would overshadow her. You know what I mean? And was that bothering you? Oh, it drove me fucking nuts, man. Why is that? Because I waited 21 years to have a, a birthday cake. Mm. It yeah. really ate at me, you know? Yeah. So I was riding this motorcycle and I saw like a lorry coming up on the road. I was so furious. I said, fuck it, just... Go ahead. And then I skidded to a stop. It's crazy. It was on uh, Route 55 over in New Jersey, Swedesboro. Skid to a stop on this bike after doing 90. And I look, and right across the road there, there's an old man walking with his dog, you know? Mm. And I said, fuck. I ain't never going to get to be an old man like that walking my dog, am I? Well, if that's the case, I ain't killing myself. Then fuck it. I'm going to ride it out as long as I can. It's interesting though to see the way you mentioned that birthday. I could see the the feeling was still there. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You asked me how close mm. I was going to go into that truck, but it's terrible how you can have that feeling, and then that was nineteen years ago. I wasted that moment because the trade off is I lived nineteen years on. My dream when I got out, I said, man, when I got my health back, I said, man, if I can live 23 years of freedom, I'll forgive everyone. But man, I've forgiven everyone already because mm-hmm. it ain't about that. You know, the best humor you can have in the world is gallows humor. Yeah. Oh, my God. I got some funny stories for you, man. Death row is the shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> I had my, the first guy that really wanted to kill me. Um, that had no knowledge of who I was or anything was in Florida. This little black dude named James. 
And at one point he had strang- gotten strangled, so he had no larynx for it, basically. So everything was like, hey, hey white boy. <laughs> so he, he would call me over to the cage, uh-huh. and this was our usual routine. While he, I was hiding between two pieces of fence in the Florida sun, a couple cells down from the electric chair, right? After the escape, they're taking me back to Pennsylvania. It's so hot, I'm trying to stay out of the sunlight. He's over there doing sit-ups on the ground. Do you see what I mean? Mm. Next level, I'm going to kill. Dead eyes, man. Mm-hmm. The only human being I ever met that had like those shark eyes, right? Same routine. He'd go over, get his work in, come over. He's cut. He's like Bruce Lee. He's already killed seven dudes. And this is in prison. Fuck, okay. Yeah, so he killed, yeah, he killed one dude in the chapel when they let him out the last time wow. in front of the whole congregation. All right, so he saw me as a trophy. I'm 6'2". At that time, I got three body, 3% body fat. Like, I'm ripped, you know what I mean? He, and he would come over after working out. He'd go, hey, hey, white boy, you know I get that chance. I'm going to kill you, right? I'd, I'd be like, I know, James, and don't worry, homie. I get my shot. I'm splattering your face on that ground. He'd be like, oh, I love it when you talk like that. It makes me so happy because you are a trophy. Like, he saw me as the epitome of the next kill. Didn't hate me. Didn't need to hate me. He just wanted to get to me. It's sport in his eyes. Yeah. Almost like MMA fighting. I liked him. Like, I liked this cat. Like, I understood him. He wasn't personal. I was just that next dude. Yeah, man, he was straight killer. I like that dude. Fuck it, no. I'd rather deal with him than the ones that'll sneak up on you sideways. At least you know never to turn your back on James. And (laughs) if they would have put us in the same cage, he probably would have gave me the fight of my life. The dude was ripped beyond ripped. Sit on a hot ground and do 250 sit-ups. Get up and do one-arm push-ups and all that, like, Mm. all day long waiting for his chance. You mentioned the the electric chair. Now, obviously, you were in there for such a long time. What was it like when a guy you knew was going to be executed? Oh, there was two different ones that got executed on my unit. So the first one was Keith Settlemeyer, passive, easygoing guy, killed his friend, very regretful. It broke my heart to see him march him down the tear and take him execute him what were the days leading up to it feeling like when you would have conversations he was the first one in pennsylvania seeking to be a volunteer so he was breaking the mold and everybody was on edge everybody volunteer yeah man he gave up his appeals oh he just said just when you're sentenced to die you have power okay you can ask to be executed right man it starts the whole process so Dudes would come to his cell like, Keith, you fucking pussy, you're giving up, you're going to let them kill all of us, that kind of shit. Oh, because they're thinking, once there's a precedent. They hadn't killed anybody since 63. 1997, they're about to kill Keith Zettelmeyer, one of my good friends. So he wanted out of his, uh, his time. Yeah, I was in the cell next to him, talking to him. And I knew he was going to do it, Brian. And he was so conflicted. And I said that you have to understand that you have to serve God's will no matter what happens to you, Keith, you know? And then they took him out and they executed him. And then the next guy was the real Buffalo Bill. 
Yeah, I got a picture on my phone, man. Um, his name is Gary Heidnick, and there was just a recent story. It's funny how we're on here talking, but Gary Heidnick abducted six black women and put them in a pit under his house and electrocuted one of them and fed them to the others. Fuck. You used to speak to this man. He was next door to me, man. Wow. Okay, so what was it like talking to someone who'd done that sort of thing? What was the conversation like? In no, 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 no. Ain't nobody gave Gary no oxygen, man. So this is how it went. He kept to himself because everybody on the unit, basically, if they didn't already whoop his ass, didn't have no time for him. You don't do that shit and, and get away with that in prison, man. Not at that time. So he would get revenge on us. Whenever the power went out on this unit, there was no circulating air and it's hush. And then he would put on a crazy performance, man. See, he used to have a hole cut in the floor and listen and watch his victims. So this sick bastard would start doing the performance of these women in terror. Oh, my God, he, he up there, he going to kill us. And he would do their voices in falsetto and then go back to his over... Uh, the overall voice that he was doing to tell us how he was God and he was going to create this fucking race and shit. Dudes would be beating on their doors, flushing their toilets, trying to drown them out. The guards come in and spray you with pepper spray. They want you to hear his shit. They're delighting in this bastard, tormenting you by hour after hour performing this sick ritual of what he was doing to these women, man. I still can't get that shit out of my head if I think about it. Because he was delighting in it. God got his bitch ass back. He asked to be executed. Guess what happened? Years before, he had abducted a, a mentally ill black woman and impregnated her after keeping her hostage. That child from the rape came out of nowhere. And she wanted to forgive her daddy. She wanted to love him. They brought her into the death chamber, and when he saw her, he fucking broke. All that racist bullshit he was spewing about creating a master race and all that the black man is weak, he ate all that on the spot when he saw his beautiful biracial daughter, didn't he? So he was a white guy with, with, with black women living under the yeah. floorboards. Yeah, he was one of those psychologically pretend twisters because when he saw his daughter, he broke, didn't he? Right. And they had that in the newspaper. So that is his final moments. His final moments was looking into the face of a child that he created. What was your... I mean, obviously, your next door to this guy's... Uh, so you, you obviously... You had a lot of feelings listening to those voices that he would do. What was your feeling the day he went? Man, they put chains on this man and marched him right past my door. And he was geeked. The energy and the smell of his body came at me. And it, I actually stood back, man. There was something next level about his projection of energy, man. Gary has these weird, big, black, brown eyes. You know what I mean? He looked like Christ, man, like on that kind of figuration. But, man, he was crazy. And when he, they came past him, I felt the, the he, and he went like this at me, like looking at me. I was like, fuck. And then they marched him off the unit. 
did you feel any sense of relief uh, or anything like that? Or I felt sick to my stomach to witness that kind of humanity. Someone that destroyed themselves with anger for no reason and made people horribly suffer. I was sick to be around them. Mm. Look, I was around dudes that did some real deep, dark shit, man. Yeah, we see the Netflix shows, but we don't have to be around these motherfuckers. Yeah, I had to live next to them. I had one dude freak out and throw his chessboard off the table out of the cell and then try to murder me for three years because I humiliated him because he was a genius. Dude, this Oh, you beat him in chess? Oh, yeah, Jay Schrader. So he was a genius. And then I smashed him in chess. Not only that, but the way I would do it is like, we had to play a board game that was numbered. So one to 64, you have an identical board as me. I call out 13 to 29. That's my pawn in front of my king two times. And then you would throw out 13 to 37, which is the opposite. So our pawns meet in the middle. If you know the number system, you can play the game. So I would take my bishop off of 27 or whatever number and I would yell out, my bishop bust your queen in the face on such and such or checkmate, take that bitch. Oh my God. This dude went mental and he was the dude that abducted his partner, killed her and fed her parents, her in ground meatballs, man, during the search, pretending to be looking for her boasting about it God got him back with stomach cancer the nurses used to come to his cell Mr. Schrader how you doing today he'd be in agony they'd be like terrible that stomach cancer maybe it was something you ate wouldn't give him his medication and shit he died in agony they made sure man you said he he, he took the girl and turned her into meatballs and fed her to our parents yeah up in Canada dude named Jay Schrader man he thought he was a genius so I did the one thing that I was doing I was studying psychology then I did six years of psychological studies from university and um, well you were able to study while behind bars yeah from Ohio University online so I did six years of psychology and I wanted to understand my own developmental issues by studying it and one of the things that I was writing to uh, my instructor about was how in the game of chess, um, people with psychological disorders were laying bare their problems and you could see their developmental issues. Like a psychopath will continuously try. You know what I mean? I had a guy hang on while I was beating him in a game only out of fear that I would yell out something traumatic upon completing the win. Fight like, I wrote this, like they will fight to the last pawn knowing that they have no chance to the last move these, just not to be humiliated. These serial killers though, if, the, if there's one thing I, I've picked up a little bit of, obviously when you're watching all these documentaries that we all watch, is they always believe they're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, and then they change when they hit the joint. You want to know why? Why? Because they're getting beat up. All right, look. You go out and you hurt women and children. Everybody's got family, man. Mm -hmm. Serial killers don't roll in jail. 
when you have the junior black mafia running the Pennsylvania prison systems or you have other gangs running prison, sickos don't come to jail and light it up and then leave like a nice trail of happiness. No, they're washing somebody's socks. They're paying protection. They're getting beat down. Yeah. You're not in control anymore. You're not in power. Yeah, you ain't running your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Because they feel powerful, obviously, when they do these Yeah, because things. they're doing it to children and weak women or whoever they feel is weak. They're that's why, them. look, that's why Dahmer got beat to death in the bathroom. He was a trophy, right? No. It was an example. Mm. You can't go out there in a, a, a manner of hideous attacks upon people, predominantly black, and then go to a black dominated prison and be anything other than the one that's going to get it yeah were you in prison at the same time he was in prison yeah was there talking about you know talking about him being in there or was he just another nah so he was in a different uh, state from me he was yeah. over in milwaukee wisconsin i was thousands of miles away in pennsylvania i assume you guys discussed the case and that it was probably big news at the time no you know it's weird because this has become quite a prominent thing in society now the dharma cases i mean that did you see the uh netflix show that they made about no i don't they really all the murders and everything yeah i don't watch things like that i think there's too much schadenfreude going on with people delighting and watching this to the desensitization of their feelings for others really that's an interesting point yeah. think about it man if you're okay watching all this brutal shit and hearing all that horrible screaming you're losing part of your humanity in the exchange I can I can never watch shows like that. It's so funny because there's two people I've had conversations who've been through real trauma with who've said that you are one of them and the other was a girl who was kidnapped, um, Elizabeth Smart. Do you know of her? Oh, God. God bless yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so of course. For those who don't know, Elizabeth Smart was basically like Madeleine McCann in America, but she was discovered. Uh, she was 14 when she was kidnapped. Nine months later, she was discovered after being raped for a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's a very well-known case in America. Right. So she, she can't watch anything like that now. No. Why should she want to watch a reality <clears throat> that she lived like me? Yeah. I don't want to watch uh, prison programming. And I don't, I don't like a lot of how it's overblown or it's falsities. Like, I, I, that's why this new program, that this new television series that I'm writing is going to be about exonerations from a different ex aspect that's going to blow people away. The male cells are horrific by comparison. The women treat each other much nicer. All right, they bitch about each other. I know. But the violent levels are so much less. It's yeah, a bit of hair pulling. Men are trying to out kill each other. It's completely different. I'll give you the difference. Mm. Go to a men's prison and you'll see visitors. Loads and loads of women keeping the love alive. Go to a women's prison and see how many men show up. <laughs> it's horrible. That really, I never, that never dawned on me. I know, because I, I've been there. All right, so Why listen. Why do you think that is? Uh, be, uh, it's one of the things that then determines this aspect. In a women's prison, they rebuild family connections. They have daughters and sisters and mother and father, even if it's not really gay. They bond in unison and they begin tribal repair. You're so right. Yeah. yeah I've seen and, that. And whereas men don't have this capacity because in the tribe, it's the center of the female that keeps the tribe together. One of my best friends in the world, uh, an old, older woman, 
uh, who's uh, helped me through the death of my mother, she said to me, a, a, a woman keeps a family together. And I honestly have seen, whenever I look at family dynamics where it's chaotic, chaotic everyone's falling out, I always look at like, where's the mother? What's the mother doing here? And if a woman is selfish and she isn't the, the giver, the, 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 the loving, supporting person, it will be a mess. It's amazing when you watch those prison programs how how they do women do fall into these roles yeah. and gather around the the mother figure. And, and as you've said rightly, these men, it makes you wonder why we are so built so different. Like uh, I had a guy, a psychologist on the show who who did liking us, and he said like you know at our base level, men are are killers, you know, soldiers, and 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 women are you know, they have the babies, you know, and, and you see Hunter, that come out in prisons. Right. Hunter-gatherer, mm. nurturer-giver. When it's not in balance, you're right. It mm. falls apart. Look, so what's it? Uh, how many broken homes do we have in this country where women are still keeping their shit together and those kids are growing up, man? That's amazing. All across the world. We've gone through this phenomenon where the partnerships are breaking down, but women are still producing generation after generation of beautiful, strong human beings. I think they're finding it harder, you know, in this modern era. Yeah, because you're you're also seeing women being inundated with the need to be equal to men on on the exactly. earning scales, and that's a burden on top of everything else. And mm-hmm. yeah, look. Can I ask you a question about when you got released, though? Yeah. Your, your first interaction with women post, you know, that was a long time. I was wondering if I was going to be fucked up. So this is cool. One of my homegirls from the neighborhood came and picked me up, like, I don't know, a couple of weeks after I got out. And she was like, Nick, like, I'm going to throw you some ass just to see if you're okay. <laughs> So we're going to go down to South Philly and get some ice cream and hang out. I'm going to let you drive my car, and then we're going to get down. So I had sex in my parents' basement while they was asleep upstairs. And I was kind of, like, weirded out at one point. It's very natural to be that way, I'm sure. Well, it was strange because I hadn't been held by anybody for so long. I was, like, like just to touch me was... and wow and I bet your senses were going crazy because femininity and all those smells and feelings and all of that do you know what really drove me crazy is that I was being touched she put her hand on my face at one point and did like this to me and it felt so amazing just to have someone touch my face it was fascinating man isn't it funny how people would be interested like immediately expecting you to to think all of those sexual feelings or whatever but but when you've been that long without having that uh, affection yeah that it's 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 the little things like i that. went yeah because i went 15 years without a human hand touching me from november of 1989 until december of 2003 no one was allowed to touch me without rubber gloves on <coughs> so so Whatever you feel comfortable sharing, obviously, it's between yeah, you and cool. the girl. But, you know, you get to that point where you're there with her and all of these feelings are kicking in. 
Can you remember anything else that was going through your head or how it felt afterwards when you were just laying there with her or? Yeah, I started, it's weird, like, it wasn't fantastic. It was too much going on. Mm. But like the fourth or fifth time, <laughs> yeah, that we hooked up. Yeah, that that made me feel masculine again. Yeah, and then and then she was like, "Okay, you know, like." What do you mean by masculine again? For well, you? when you can really handle your business in a fucking bedroom, do you know what I mean? That full on. She's trying to get out of the bed because there's just so much going on, and you snatch her by the ankle, pull her back down, and work her over for two more hours. <laughs> like I, I would, I had so much pent up thing. Yeah, yeah, I could go for hours, man. Like that, I, I have twenty years plus, bro. Yeah. No, not only that. What if I opened up an ice cream shop to you after you dreamed of the taste of vanilla ice cream f- for life? Uh huh. You're going to go through all of those delights to the nth degree, man. Like, I, That must have been hard to get over, that, as in, like, to come to terms with, now I can have it. it, it, for, it yeah, it, yeah it's, it's like an alcoholic taking their first sip of beer again or whatever yeah. after that long. Like, you are going to naturally overindulge. Did, you, did that happen yeah, to you? Yeah, I was dating five women at one point. Can't yeah. say I'm surprised, bro. Then it when it fucked, yeah. Because how it, was that? Well, it how, was hard. No, because it was hard. You know what? It bothered me. I started repeating the same behaviors with everyone, so well, it you became felt like you fake. Were repeating yourself. Yeah, it's like I wasn't really feeling any joy, and so I stopped. You know, and then it just became all about the pleasure sort of thing of the seeking of it. Yeah, and I was I was finding out I was only getting laid because I was more curiosity than anything. So it wasn't me. To, I was having. You know what I mean? You, you look like, and forgive me if I'm wrong here, but you look like you don't. You feel a bit ashamed of this. Yeah, I. I Why is that? Because I, I honestly, because I know I fucked up when I. I really just wanted to have one love affair, and I'm madly in love with Laura Thompson right now. And yeah. all my life, I wanted to have that. Like you're human, right. though. You, yeah, we, and so we are human, and I know, but who I, could for, who could yeah, but I keep him? getting crucified because I got a stalker who makes it all known to everyone and tries to make me look dirty. So it's a complex thing where I really wish I hadn't done things that I've done, mm. but they're done now, and I can't do anything but move forward. And the beautiful thing is, I still like myself. I still have the capacity to go on and be a caring, giving person. But when you were talking about that, there was a hint of you there that looked... I didn't like, like you that. you hadn't forgiven yourself for it yet. It isn't forgiving myself. I don't like that. Mm. I mean, I'm just like every other guy. I, I'm, I'm, I'm susceptible to the wiles of females, right? Especially after 20 plus years, bro. Right. But who, could, who could blame you? But I don't want that. Mm. Well, that's not who you are right now. No, I'm trying so hard to be good. I swear. Like, I got my head down. I, 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 I kept trying so hard to try and do this right right i know i'm flirtatious i know i have an open like personality and it's easily be sexually flirtation but i'm not going anywhere with it man Mm. but i i can see where that's caused me chaos i need to chill very hard to deal with i'm sure i mean if i had done 22 years in prison and all of a sudden there were women out there who were like let me try and see what this guy's like after you know he's in the news and yada 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 i mean you're you're a human i mean Dude, 
I had an event down in the, uh, on the Strand. Mm. I did a presentation um, for a woman who was a pen pal with an artist on death row, and she was an artist, so they're selling these pieces of art for like 10 grand, and everybody's in a black tie. A very well-known, very famous British billionaire had a woman on his hip walks up to me he shakes my hand I'm like dude nice to meet you like blown away I shake her hand she had a note in her hand with her number on it like I was I like I kept it cool and I was like like put my hand in my pocket and I was like wow that's some hardcore next level thing mm-hmm. and we often hear about the the death row uh, women romances yeah, yeah. The, the women often send these guys emails letters and all of that so do you feel like that's been a factor of, of what you've gone through post-release or even during? Well, especially post-release. Mm. So a lot of the women who are enamored with the guys that are bad boys and yeah. been on death. Yeah. I mean, bad boys is one thing. Yeah. Death row, eh, mate? That's <laughs> dude, they were fighting in the lobby of the jail to go visit the Night Stalker dude. Oh, was he in your prison? No, he was out in California. Remember that guy, Richard Ramirez? Yeah, yeah. Was, Women were fighting yeah. to get to him. Because they thought he was like the Sexy, yeah. Guy. Like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. See what I mean? Yeah, so don't date them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that won't go bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've had different experiences where I'm glad that... Did you, like, did you phone that woman? No, I was so horrified that she had done that to him, man. Oh, that was not, he wasn't, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yo, man, that's cold. Yeah. But it's a nice story to tell. She wants that death She was, kick. man, she was fine too, so. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, I, I know. All right, so, I, and I ain't gonna lie, man, I got a fucking gift. Mm-hmm. Like, I can light it up. <laughs> Fair no, play, if you th- all right, well, think about it. I dreamed about making love to someone so long when I got a chance. All those dreams were infinitely helpful. Mm. Huh? I mean, I used to sit in my cell and daydream so beautifully that I would meet her in a cafe in Paris and we would share a laugh. And as we walked along the Champs-Élysées, I would hold her hand and knowing that there was this warm embrace we were going to somehow make love mm-hmm. I would daydream out all that whole beautiful sequence so then in my personal life that's what I was doing man I was trying to be that super romantic love was it ever difficult to achieve that not with Laura mm. man imagine me and her had some of the most beautiful romantic times in my life man we stood before a beautiful tree in Geneva and we said our vows to each other about love. Mm-hmm. We said we didn't need no preacher to talk about what love meant to us. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember a lot of times there was always a ritual. No matter what trip I was on, when I came home, that girl was going to wear my shirt. That was part of it for her. That romantic thing of wearing me to bed with me you know or waking up she always had to have my shirts on so that was a nice feeling our how, how have you survived without that uh, connection then in america for those years like was it three years you were yeah. apart so two years yeah it's, it's been really difficult that's why I, with this brain injury 
I'm really praying that love is the solution for me. And I need someone to wake up and help me, Brian. I do very difficult on my own, and I knew it was getting to be too much. So well, you're a man. We're all shit on our own. I'm useless. Yeah, I, you know, we all need a woman. No, nothing can make you happier than a good woman. Nothing can make you feel more um, awake and alive than someone who listens to you. Because mm-hmm. when you wake up and you have no one to speak to, it becomes an empty thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you're over here, mate, and I'm glad that you've had this like this new beginning again. You know, this new experience with all these creators, and you're going to do the TV show, and you're talking to Laura again. I'm, and I, I know it's been hard. I've been watching from afar, and we've been talking here and there. And it, it, I, I was worried about you, especially when I seen you were living in the woods. I was like, "Fuck!" But now, seeing you here in the flesh, you know, you got your suit on, you're motivated. Got I'm, a new job, bro. Got a new I'm, I'm delighted for you, man, and I, and, I, and literally, I know everyone's going to be hoping for the best for you. And uh, let's do this again. I'm so glad that I came here to London because I have always felt like a bad motherfucker walking around in a suit. But today was like next level shit. Oh, yeah. mate, you look the bollocks. No, because I'm coming to see my boy. You understand? Yeah. When you're on a mission, man, I I rock this today. Okay, well, let, we'll get some food and uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap it here. But thanks to everyone who watched and thank you to Nick for coming in. Don't forget to like the video, stay subscribed to the True Geordie YouTube channel. Thanks very much. Cheers, brother. Cheers. That was fucking awesome.